Welcome to the Christchurch Manchester Theology Podcast. The CCM School of Theology meets monthly on Saturday mornings at Luther King House in Manchester. For more information about the training that we offer or about our church in Manchester, please visit www.christchurchmanchester.com. Saturday 17th of November, David Devonish taught two sessions at the Christchurch Manchester School of Theology. This is the second of those sessions where David looked at how we as Christians engage with culture. David is one of the senior leaders in the New Frontiers network of churches and is a regular writer and speaker on various theology topics. So let's take a listen to the session. We're now going through... uh, look at the um, final session on engaging with culture. Now, I wondered how to play this, and we asked Andy's advice. Do I deal with it in relation to modern British culture or modern Western culture, or do I give you some principles for understanding culture? And I decided to do that for a number of reasons. Firstly, if you understand those principles, that helps you apply them to the, if you like, postmodern Western culture, although I'll make some allusions to that. Um, also, because we now, hallelujah, live in a multicultural s- setting in Britain today, aren't you thankful for that? Yes. Come on. Because we have the privilege of living in a multicultural society. We have the privilege of reaching many different ethnic groups. We have a privilege in our churches being able to demonstrate the unity of different ethnic groups in Christ. What a privilege. Especially in big multicultural cities. Great, you live in Manchester. You've got the opportunity to, to demonstrate that. I'm serious. (laughs) But in doing that, we need to be able to relate to the different cultures around us. Therefore, we need to understand. We also need to relate to the Bible. There's a very good book written, which I would recommend if you want to really study this more. It's called Misreading Scripture Through Western Eyes. <laughs> okay, I can't remember the, the guy, who, he speaks at our, the, the Middle Age, sorry, the Middle East Bible School that we run. Oh, sorry, Middle Age. <laughs> that just shows, puts me in my place. In that. Middle East Bible School that we run, uh, regularly we run it in Istanbul and Beirut for uh, people working in and leaders from Middle Eastern countries. And so uh, he lectures at that, but I've forgotten his name. That's terrible, isn't it? So, but misreading scripture through Western eyes. And then if you really want to give, go into it in great depth, and if you're a preacher, you ought to, then Bailey's book, Jesus Through Middle Eastern Eyes. Okay which is a fantastic book, Jesus Through Middle Eastern Eyes. 
because the Bible is an Eastern book, therefore reading scripture is a cross-cultural experience. Doesn't mean that you have to know all about the culture in order to understand it because the main things in the Bible are clear. But to really appreciate a lot of its depth, you need to understand how it's written, particularly things like the parables. You know, they are Eastern stories which often we miss in Western contexts. You know, we think if a friend knocks on your door at midnight and asks for some food, well, lots of things you could think. Well, in polite British society, you would wait until the next morning, wouldn't you? you just let them go to bed hungry. Or you'd go to the 24-hour supermarket. But in that culture, in that culture, any visitor to a village, the honour of the village would be undermined if he wasn't fed, even if he wasn't hungry. I've been to places where I wasn't even hungry, but they still, at midnight, had to feed me. <laughs> and so we interpret that in the light of a Western experience, and we say, you must keep on knocking, because God doesn't really want to hear you. Keep knocking! In the Eastern context, it's a bit of a joke story, really. No one would make some silly excuse about the door being locked and children in bed. Do you see what I mean? Of course. His honour's at stake. If you pray in the name of Jesus, it's an encouragement to pray. So ask and you'll receive. It's the context. Do you get me? And there will be... Uh, Many stories like that. So what I'm going to do, therefore, is start off by telling some stories about culture. Why? Because actually, you learn more about this from stories than the principles that I'll be teaching you later. Because, and actually also, most of the world learned through stories. And we'll come on to look at that later as well. Okay. In English, we have an expression, what is the point of the story? Don't we? Oh, the point of the story is, and many Western people and Western preachers refer to a story and then extract the point. That's not how the Bible does it. The Bible tells you the story. Because for 70% of the world who are oral learners, the story is the point of the story. I'm often went preaching when they get to know me and I tell some story, not a Bible story, but an illustration from life. And I get to the point of the story, the thing I want to bring out for this illustration. People will shout out from the congregation, what happened next? <laughs> now to a Western, I think, oh, it's irrelevant what happened next. You, you know, I've illustrated my sermon. <laughs> no, you haven't. We want to know the whole story. West, uh, one of our friends, one of our, the apostolic leaders of New Frontiers, uh, Karen Katachalian from Armenia, he often teaches on 
reading the Bible as an Easterner. And he says, Westerners don't finish the story and don't start the story. They just go into the middle somewhere. So he did some then teaching on Peter denying Jesus three times. He said, you've got to understand this is relate relevant to the whole story of Peter. Peter was always wanting to make himself one up on the other disciples. In fact, that's the background to it. If everyone else denies you, I won't. And then he went right through the life of Peter. He was always trying to make himself up, one up on the other disciples. So he told the story about Peter walking on the water. Now in the West, we use that as an example of faith. Karen said, Jesus never commended Peter for that. He rebuked him for his lack of faith. He didn't. He said, come on, you show you're better than everybody else. Then put him back in the boat with all the others. See what I mean? Because the whole story of Peter through the Gospels is that, and you find it time and time again, wanting to be better than others. And even when Jesus then restores him, he says, do you love me more than these? See? Come on! (laughs) Well, either throw stones at me and I'm a heretic, or... (laughs) I'm just trying to help you understand culture when it comes to the Bible, apart from anything else. Okay, so here's some stories. A guy from India came to Bedford, where I live, and he was going to preach in one of the Punjabi-speaking churches in Bedford, which we have a couple, and we know them well. And, but he happened to stay with a, West, with a white English family. I can't remember the reason, but this was told to me by the pastor of the Punjabi-speaking church. And he said, when he arrived, they said, would you like anything to eat? This was the evening. He said, no, thank you. And they said, oh, well, he must have eaten on the plane or got something at the airport before he came, left, so we won't give him anything. Next morning, would you like some breakfast? No, thank you. This was a very traditional English family, so at 11 o'clock in the morning, they said, would you like a cup of coffee? Mm-hmm. <laughs> no, thank you. Lunchtime, same thing. No, thank you. Eventually, he got taken to, the, to my friend at the Punjabi-speaking church. And the first thing he said to him, how do you ever get anything to eat in this country? Now, I've told this story in many places, and often people have experienced the same sort of thing. How do you say Because you don't presume upon the relationship sufficiently to say yes at the first invitation. 
you need to be asked at least three times, do you really? Because you want to know that the person really wants to feed you and he's not just being polite. Don't you? <laughs> Pardon? This makes sense to me. My family's half, half Indian. Okay. Yeah, just go ask again. It's in the Bible. You know the story about Jesus on the road to Emmaus? And it says, when they got to the town, he made as if to go further. But they, no, no, we really want you to eat with us. And then, I thought about this story, but another friend of mine, he was a, Older, older man from Ukraine, and the, he'd come, to, come over to a conference we used to hold in Brighton, and he came up to Bedford afterwards. And we used to, we'd put him with a family that had often uh, given hospitality to guests from other countries, so we thought it'd be all right. But then he, then that, at the last minute, they couldn't have him for some reason, so we quickly got somebody else to have him. And the lady came to me on Sunday morning. She said, I don't understand. She said, he's not eating anything. I said, what do you mean? She said, we've got offered him breakfast. and didn't have any. Well, A, he didn't speak any English. He didn't have any. I said, well. She said, what do we do? I said, give him something to eat. And then invite him several times to sit down and eat it. And she said, said to me the next day, it worked. <laughs> well, of course it worked. There were, I read this story in a book. These are ones I've experienced, but I read this one in a book. There was, on an aeroplane, three young women sitting together. One was American, ethnically. One was also American, but brought up in Lebanon, in the Middle East. And the other was a Lebanese girl who'd come to America. So they were sitting on the, pl on the plane together. And the American, who's purely American, said to the one American who'd been brought up in the Middle East, tell us something about the culture. What was it like growing up in Lebanon? And so she started telling a few stories. Then she told one very similar to the one I've just told about, you know, being asked three or four times before you. And then the Lebanese girl broke in. She said, I never knew that. She said, what do you mean you never knew it? You were brought up in, you are Lebanese. Oh, I never knew the whole of the world wasn't like that. She said, now I understand why I've got no friends in America. People where I worked, because she was working, asked me for lunch when I first arrived to go with them for lunch. But I thought, I can't presume upon this relationship. Do they really want me to go for lunch? So they didn't ask me anymore. It's been like that all the time. People don't ask me. Now I understand. Why I feel so lonely. 
The answer is culture. You, you with me? Okay, so I was I in um, people of friends of ours were driving in a particular eastern city, eastern town, small town. I asked where the post office was. And they were told, well, you go down there, turn left, turn right, and then ask again. So they did that. Then ask somebody else, oh, you go, uh, ask again. It was only a small town. In the end, they got all round to see the whole town <laughs> and found out there was no post office in that town. <laughs> but it would have been really shameful for anyone to admit it. <laughs> and also, you want to please these guests. You can't say to them, we don't have a post office. They want a post office. As you know, the issue of lack of peace in the Middle East between Israelis and Palestinians has been going on for a long time. No one's ever made any breakthrough. The closest ever there was breakthrough was when, and this is history for some of you, but for, some, for others of us it's current affairs, was when President Carter was President of the United States. Have you ever heard of President Carter? Okay, Jimmy Carter. Okay. I was serving on international trade negotiations at the UN at the time President Carter was President of America. It's going back many years. That was my job at the time. And it's the only time I can remember where by the whole developing world, America was mightily respected. But most Americans think he was a disaster as a president. Anyway... He understood these things. And he got, gathered together the then leader of the Palestinians, Yasser Arafat, and the then uh, leader of the Israelis, Menachem Begin, and got them to his Camp David retreat. And, of course, the press was wanting to know what progress they're making, and they virtually got there. Then other things happened in history after that. And in the end, he came out and did a press conference, a press conference, Mr. President, how far are you getting in your negotiations? He said, we're doing really well. Please, could you give us an example of your progress? He said, yes, we all know the names of each other's grandchildren. That's real progress. Because for most parts of the world, relationship precedes decision and arriving at something in negotiation. People don't understand that. People don't understand that when they, even companies don't understand it when they go to China today. I've, I've heard this story many times of companies who they've done their presentation, they've done their, uh, all their PowerPoints, and they've done everything, they've presented all their documents, they've done it all, and then they wait for a reply. 
Nothing happens. Nothing happens. Nothing happens. Then they keep pressing, you know, please let us know. In the event they go invited out to China. And they spend three or four days being wined and dined by the Chinese. It wouldn't be wine, but it would be something a little bit stronger. And so, and they, they think, what's going on? All we're doing is, we're not even talking about the business. And then towards the end, the Chinese will say, yes, we've read all your presentations. We'd love to do business with you. What happened? They couldn't do business with people they don't know. Do you understand? That's how it works in most of the world. You've had Andy McCulloch speaking here. I expect you heard him say, efficiency is a Western idol. There's a big difference between efficiency and fruitful effectiveness. Okay. Friends, are you learning? Why are you learning? Have I taught you any principles yet? No. You're learning like 70% of the world learns through the stories. That's why Jesus always taught in parables. In Turkey... Um, we started to plant a church in a particular place um, and just got a small group going and there was a Turkish man in this small group who was very, very talkative. He was an older man and very, very talkative. And the guy leading the team in the end, felt this is putting off all other Turkish people because he's just doing all the talking all the time. And so in the end, he felt, I've just got to address it. So he addressed it and asked him, look, please give others a chance to talk. He tried to do it in a nice diplomatic way. Please get everybody else to talk. Anyway, please let others talk. Don't let some of these newer people talk. In the end, there was... Massive blowout, total breakdown of relationships. And so we sent in a very experienced guy and his wife to meet with this man and just say, what's wrong? And they said, they said look, please understand, it's, he was only thinking of the other Turkish people coming. And the guy said, yes, I know that. So what's the problem? Do you have a problem? No, no, I don't have any problem with what he said to me. Why the massive blowout then? Because he never called me Arby. Right. Whenever in Turkey you're speaking to a man older than yourself, you always would say, David Arby. Because it shows I'm respectful. All the time. And they always call me David Arby, because I'm older than most of them. Andrew Wilson always calls me David Arby as well, because he heard that story. But uh, the, it just means older brother. 
but it shows a term of respect, which is largely in our culture we don't have it. Respect in, West, in English culture is a very mysterious thing. It's there, but other people can't discern it, just like, in fact, they often think we're being disrespectful. So, um, but he didn't say Arby. By the way, if he was talking to an older lady, you always called her Abla, which means older sister. Because these things are important. Because how you, it's particularly in shame on the cultures, which I'll talk about when I do some principles after the break. How you do it is very, how you speak is as important as what you say. Are you showing respect? Remember this when you're speaking to people. Now, our sort of church, because we sort of wanted to get free of religious tradition, stopped calling the pastor, pastor. We call him Tim or Colin, right? And we've encouraged that. That does not work in most places. Why? Because you cannot say to someone who's in a position of respect from you just by their Christian name. Oh, but we're free. You know, no, you're free in your culture. And our doing that as a group of churches, modern charismatic churches, not just New Frontiers, modern charismatic churches doing it like that, did it at exactly the same time as British culture changed. Because uh, when I was very young, you always called an older person Mr. So-and-so. Then came a time in our culture where you can call anybody by their Christian name, whether you're two or 92. That was a change in culture. But we thought it was us being free. Now, I'm not saying to people in Western culture, I wouldn't expect them to call me Pastor David. I'm very happy for them to call me David. Even the two-year-olds. That's fine. But I would not put on somebody who, to sp who couldn't in their spirit have or their conscience talk in a way that's disrespectful. Now, it's not because we believe in the position. I'm teaching, all over the world I'm teaching against positional leadership, but I do so in a way that honours their culture, doesn't undermine it. In Russia, it's easier because... If you've read Russian novels, you'll, you'll often get confused with who are they talking about because each time they use a different name for them. Well, that's because it depends on the level of relationship you have with them and what you call them. So if you respect an older person there, you call them by a combination, and this is how children would address their headmistress at school, a combination of their, their Christian name, their first name, and their patronymic name, not their surname, their patronymic name, which is the name of their father with daughter of or son of, added. Okay. So the guy that leads our churches, I'm just back from Russia, in the south of Russia. His name is Valera. That's his Christian name. I call him Valera. He's younger than me. His surname is Selesnyov. Hardly anyone ever uses that unless on official documents. But his father was called Fyodor, which is Fred. So everyone calls him Valery Fyodorovich. Because they show respect. 
Or if they know him well, they'll just call him Fjordovic. Because they're still being respectful, but they know him well. Do you see? What does he call you? What does he call me? Well, he knows I'm English. And I don't have the equivalent. They struggle with me in Russia. Not because, not most of them, no, they love me. You know, don't misunderstand me. They struggle with what to call me because I don't have a patronymic name and I'm the person they respect and I'm the up, older than nearly all of them and I'm the apostolic leader that they respect. So what do they call me? It's very hard. But actually, so a lot of them call me Devonish because that sounds like the Russian, it, it sounds as if it's ending like the Russian itch, but it's ish. So they think ish must be an English equivalent of itch, so they call me Devonish, which sounds most disrespectful in English. <laughs> but, but I can live with that. You see, what I've done is try to tell you stories that will bring home to you how different cultures work. It's all right, after the break, I'll give those of you who are not oral learners and like the list of concepts, it's all right, I'll do them after the break, all right? I once did this, I was doing a pastor's leadership training thing, I was doing a whole day on culture. So the first hour and a quarter, I just told stories. One guy got mad with me. (laughs) And he actually said, a young pastor, he actually said, when are you going to teach us something? He got mad with me. I said, welcome to the way 70% of the world learns, including 70% of your congregation. (laughs) So I try and say stories that the the majority of the people, not all, because some of you come from other cultures here and I could see that you understand what I'm talking about, even if the rest of them don't. And uh, the, um, but I, I, I sometimes have to do it the other way around. So when I was in Turkey, they asked me in one church, they said, we've got a lot of foreigners in our church. And can you teach us how to relate to them? Because foreigners are a bit of a mystery. <laughs> Westerners. So will you do some teaching on culture for us to appreciate Westerners? Because we don't get them, you know? So again, I try and start with a story. I said, what story would shock these dear Turkish believers? So I said, did you know, in our nation, people put children to bed before they go to bed themselves? Total silence. They looked at me. I can still see the expressions on their faces. What? Really? And then someone asked the question, how many hours do you work out that they go to bed before you? Because supposing you're going to bed later, you're going to bed at midnight instead of 10 o'clock, does that mean you put your children two hours later to bed as well? Because they thought there must be some strange formula for putting children to bed before you go. And I tried to explain, no, it's not quite like that. And I had a lot of other questions, because they didn't get it, really. They couldn't think of any... Is there any reason why you put your children to bed first before you go to bed yourself? 
and I couldn't think of a good one really, but they, not one that wouldn't offend their culture. So I said, children need longer sleep. And they said, well, ours don't. <laughs> or if they do, they take a sleep during the day. And so I thought, what do I say? And then one woman said, she said, and she had a, I can still see her worried look. She said, David, are they? Don't, <laughs> don't English people like their children? <laughs> and of course, did you know, as far as I know, and I know lots of cultures, it's only North European cultures or their derivatives in America and Canada and places that put their children to bed way ahead of going to bed themselves and that we're in a tiny minority in the world. It becomes an issue when we send people to other countries because do we, we, want, our children, we want to be identified with the people we've gone to, do we still put our children to bed? Big issue. They usually compromise and do halfway in between. But I've been to Christian seminars where it's almost unbiblical not to put your children to bed. But they never show me the verse. <laughs> <laughs> but it's taught along with all the rest of the good family stuff from the Bible. Does that mean it's wrong to put your children to bed? No. It's your culture. But never extrapolate from your cultural outworking of a biblical principle what the biblical principle is. Do you understand? Because you have to contextualise the biblical principle. The biblical principle is care for your children. How you work that out is cultural. Well, do a few stories. Are you getting it? Okay, I'll give you some principles to, to make you feel comfortable this afternoon. Uh, sorry, not this afternoon, next, well, it will be, no, go on. Yeah. Is there any uh, non-compromisable uh, kind of flat rate things that you would say, um, we will never compromise on this behaviour or this way? Only on, a, only on something I can demonstrate is from the Bible and is not capable of different cultural outworkings. Okay? Polygamy, maybe. But even there, you know, I'm coaching some of Apostolic leaders from parts of Africa, and they asked me, they said, start, start talking about polygamy. Said, the problem is, a lot, of our guys, a lot of our guys have already got several wives. What do you do? And also, one particular culture, <coughs> I won't say where, but they said, in our culture, because the Bible says elders must be well spoken of by outsiders. You know that scripture? In our culture, you are more honoured by outsiders the more wives you have. What should we do? Well, let's have a break. <laughs> oh, come on, be Eastern on me. Okay, the rest of the story. Oh, you're good, dear. 
we debated it for a while because you can't say to people uh, yeah, all, missionaries used to say decades ago just keep the first wife divorce the rest you can't do that the Bible says God hates divorce this is a covenant you can't break covenant So, where we worked it out was this, after a long discussion in this guy's church, because the first convert was the most honourable person in the village who'd got several wives, and it was the obvious leader. What do you do? So, we came to the conclusion, well, this guy came to the conclusion, but I supported his conclusion. Yeah? To appoint elders, we will wait for the next generation, because the Bible says that clearly about elders, husband of, 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 of one wife. He will be the host of the gathering, because they meet in his home. He will be honoured as the host. When the next generation comes through and we appoint elders, he will still be honoured as the founder but we don't compromise the principle, which is what I'm illustrating, what you're saying, of appointing polygamous elders. But we do honour him. We don't go outside of scripture in doing that. We work it out in the culture and we, don't, and we do it in a way that still retains his honour. What, what about when uh, biblical principles clash? Based on well, that was. So someone, some, someone okay, I'll, I'll, I'll go for that. Okay, so something you you adapt to the culture, but you stand against the strongholds of the culture, including Western culture, which we miss because we don't notice our own strongholds. Just in passing, but the okay, let me. What, there's one particular tribe that uh, I've visited, and uh, um, I wasn't the leader there. Somebody else, so he worked it all out, but. There, if a couple get married in this particular tribe, the best man is the most important person. If the best man after the marriage ever arrives at the house, the husband has to leave and leave his wife with the best man for the night. <laughs> okay. All right. That is so clearly against scripture that we deal with that directly because it's not an outworking of a principle. But we're blind to the ones in our own culture very often. With that, let's take a break. More stories. Do you want more stories or do you want the concepts now? Some of you are dying for the concepts. No, no. I'll t- <laughs> okay, just a couple more, because I thought about them during the break. Uh, remember once I'd been in Russia for three months I'd done teaching all the time leadership training mainly every time there was a break someone brought me a cup of coffee or tea first thing they would say is what do you want, tea or coffee bring me biscuits, bring me cakes even if I didn't want them and uh, then I came back to the UK, and the next day, it so happened, 
I was starting to teach at, it was New Frontiers, in those days, going back some years, New Frontiers Leadership Training, which was, and I remember it was going, I was going to Norwich to do their regional leadership training. <laughs> Norwich. And so, uh, first break, I, uh, loads of people came up to me to ask me questions in the break. I thought, well, that's fine. Someone will bring me a cup of tea. Someone will bring me a cup of coffee. <laughs> and I waited and waited. People were asking me questions. Then I thought, I'd better go and get myself a cup of coffee. Obviously, no one's going to bring it. So I went, and just before I got there, the sort of flask or whatever it was of decent coffee had all gone. And I thought, what an interesting illustration. I couldn't, you know, I... The idea of the speaker having to join the queue to get the coffee, but we wouldn't think anything of it, would we? And I don't when I'm here. You know, the English always say sorry. I remember I gave this illustration once. I was taking a conference for our, it was our, a conference in the East, and uh, all different nationalities were there. But it, we were using a tourist hotel, and there were a lot of Russian tourists in this hotel. And I was queuing up for the salad. And of course, I'm British, so I queue up for the salad. <laughs> and I remember this Russian lady almost pushed me out of the way and grabbed a salad, and I said sorry. <laughs> People don't get it. Uh, they say, well, why do I do say sorry? Well, so you had loads of cultural principles there, queuing or not queuing, grabbing or not grabbing, looking to see whether the other person is getting served or not, all those of things, and this saying sorry thing. Funny it was, really. Oh, I like our culture on that one. So, uh, there you are. Um, but, yeah? Um, what would you say about our main cultural blind spots? Individualism. Massive. Consumerism. Uh, so although in, in some places you wouldn't queue, you would, you would grab for yourself, actually, although we don't do that, that's an external thing, but in the end, we even apply, the big, we even apply corporate things in the Bible to us as individuals. So the scripture... Don't get drunk with wine, but be filled with the Spirit. Almost any Western sermon says, that means I mustn't get drunk, but I must be filled with the Spirit. The context is not that at all. The context is, don't be a community that's getting drunk on wine, but be a community being filled with the Spirit, singing to one another out of Psalms. And it's obviously community, but I hardly ever hear any preaching on it. Because we think individualistically all the time rather than the community. We put the individual above the community. That's a massive Western stronghold. That's one example. 
I've got a whole seminar on this, but I haven't got, I must move on, but I'll just throw out one example for you. Okay. Okay, now let's do some conceptual learning. To make, to make some of you happy who like lists. I remember doing leadership. So I'm going to do another story now. But I remember doing <laughs> leadership training again. This was again in southern Russia. and this, we, did, we did our whole leadership training course in five different bases across the Russian-speaking world over three or four years. And we did it very intensively. And uh, I remember one guy coming up to me at the end. Uh, it wasn't of my teaching, somebody else's, but he said, they're so helpful. All this theology is so helpful. I really mean that, he said. But, he said, at the end of a week, I'm fed up with Englishmen and lists. Why do Englishmen always talk in lists? Point one, point two. Why? Why? I want something to speak to my soul. <laughs> All right. Well, it's culture. Comes from the Latin cultura, meaning behaviour, education, development, and includes how we traditionally behave. Family traditions, because it's different. Even just look at Christmas. Different families have different, their own cultural traditions as well. How you dress, the arts, taboos. Well, that means what practices are acceptable and unacceptable. I... There was, oh dear, there was a guy who was a pastor in one of our churches who was reaching out to his, the women in his church reaching out through English lessons to local Muslim women. And he said, I've been helping them work out what stories to tell from the Bible. He'd got, he'd, 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 he'd sort of got my thing on stories. That was good. So he said, we're going to start with the story of Jesus with the woman at the well because that undermines all the Muslims thinking about whether you should speak to women on their own and all that. I said, please don't! That's a total taboo in that culture. You start off by telling them a story which would make them think that Jesus is an immoral man. I said, that story's fine when you've told other stories which cause them to appreciate Jesus. But you don't start there. Taboos, that's taboo in their culture. So you have to know what they are. Relationships, how relationships are organized, how society is organized. Charles Kraft, who writes a lot on this, said the relationship between culture and human beings is similar to the relationship between water and fish. Humans are totally and inextricably immersed in water, in, in fish, in culture. In fish, in water, in culture. You know, you, you just are, you are totally, and you often don't know that you're in your culture until you meet someone from a different culture. I remember a friend of ours who was uh, working, working in a Middle Eastern country. And she came from South London. <laughs> and she said to me, before I came here, David, I didn't even know I had a culture.
Okay. Culture can be defined as the way of life of a particular society, including its patterns of thought. This is all good stuff, isn't it, for some of you? Beliefs, behaviour, customs, traditions, rituals, dress, language. Language expresses culture. There are certain things you can't quite say in other languages because there's nothing in their culture. That... That's why it's not only important to learn, teach, for people to learn language in order to communicate, they don't understand the culture without a learning language. Art, music and literature. These particular systems of belief and practices are based on the assumptions people make about themselves, about the world around them and about ultimate realities. Cultures involve the worldviews. That's the deepest level of culture, by the way. Social structures and institutions that give meaning to life. Cultures provide people with the means of expressing, this is an important sentence, their deepest feelings formalised in ways understood and accepted by those around them. It's ever so hard to, ex to express feelings cross-culturally. You can express ideas once you've learned the culture and how to express it. But we just assume that people understand how we're feeling if we do certain things. People miss it. Okay? And it's often a problem. Because it's, it's why. Well, I'll throw a bit of controversy in here. Why? You've got to be very careful in a multicultural church that you have worship that can, where feelings of different cultures can be expressed. And we're having to learn that because we're 40% non white English in our church. Having to learn how to do that. It helps me because I go to Russia a lot. Now I can read Russian, it's a different alphabet, okay? It's no problem, I can read and understand it when I see the words. But because I'm trying to read the words, I can't sing it quite because I can't get the words into the music because they're going too fast. And then I think to myself, that's how people without English as their first language are experiencing it in my church. With our modern songs, which you can't get the words into that. Even if it's your own language, you can't always get the words into the... Do you know what I mean? But... <laughs> do, 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 do you see what I mean? I think, so how can people express... Cause, do you believe feelings and emotions are involved in worship? Does anyone believe that? Absolutely! Therefore we have to think these things through. Because emotion is hard cross-culturally. Another brilliant comment, quote from Tim Keller. Uh, no point in me saying it if somebody else can say it better. Every human culture is like an extremely complex mixture of brilliant truth, marred half-truths and over-resistance to the truth. Every culture will have some idolatrous discourse within it, yet every culture will have some witness to God's truth in it. God gives out good gifts of wisdom, talent, beauty and skill, completely without regard for merit. He casts them across a culture like seed, 
in order to enrich, brighten and preserve the world. Without this understanding of culture, Christians will tend to think that they can live self-sufficiently isolated from and unblessed by the contribution of those in the world. Without an appreciation for God's gracious display of his wisdom in the broader culture, Christians may struggle to understand why non-Christians often exceed Christians in moral practice, wisdom and skill. The doctrine of sin means that as believers, we're never as good as our right worldview should make us. At the same time, the doctrine of our creation in the image of God and an understanding of common grace remind us that non-believers are never as flawed as their false worldview should make them. That takes some thinking about. But what I wanted to say is that we must have a doctrine of God's common grace that he has distributed in every culture things that reflect his image. Every culture reflects something of the image of God. Every culture is also distorted because the image of God is distorted in all. And that leads us to appreciate different cultures. We look for what, what reflects God in this culture. Also, another quote from, um, what's, what's his Christian name, Walls. Um, Andrew Walls, yeah. Says this. Cultural diversity was built into the Christian faith. In Acts 15, which declared the new Gentile Christians didn't have to enter Jewish cultures. The converts had to work out a Hellenistic, that's a Greek way of being a Christian. So no one owns the Christian faith. There is no Christian culture the way there is an Islamic culture, which you can recognise from Pakistan to Tunisia to Morocco. Therefore, I avoid expressions like Christian culture. I don't say that. I don't say kingdom culture even. Well, that's very popular with some people. I say no. It's Christian truth, kingdom values worked out through the culture in which you live and expressed in appropriate forms within that culture. Okay? You happy with that? Well, think about it if you're not. All right. So there's different sorts of cultures. Firstly, law, guilt, honour, shame and security, anxiety cultures. Those are the basic three forms of culture when it comes to how do you keep order, how do you know what's right or wrong or honourable and shameful, how do you know, how do you keep order within that culture, what do you do, how do you motivate people to do what is right. And so, because there are probably three factors which bring control in human personality in every culture. Anxiety, shame and guilt. Some cultures are more geared towards anxiety, some towards shame, some towards guilt. So in animistic cultures, some African cultures, for example, it's, you keep order by saying, if you do wrong in this, you will offend your ancestors, the spirits of your ancestors might get you, And animistic cultures, I'm not talking about now they're reached by the gospel, but animistic cultures, that's how it works. You bring, 
they are motivated by fear of what will happen if they offend. And that is replaced in the gospel by security in Christ. It's what, and, okay, I'll, I'll come back to that. All right, that's... Then the second form of culture is shame, honour. So, Eastern culture, and the further east you go, the more it's like it. So, when you get to Japan, things like face and China, saving face is very, very important. So, shame is the fear of the attitude of others to any misbehaviour. The disapproval of parents or society at large is more important than the actual performance of a deed. So it's not whether it's right or wrong, or it's rather, does it bring shame on the community or does it bring honour to the community? Okay. And so loss of face is to be feared. Law guilt is mainly in Western culture, and that leads to concepts of right and wrong rather than honourable or dishonourable. Also to my rights and an individualistic approach to life and the gospel. Okay. Anxiety, shame and guilt are all seen in the story of fallen man in the garden. Genesis 3. Notice. Anxiety, they hid. Shame, they were naked. Guilt, they blame shifted. And the, the Bible is mainly written in a shame on a context. The 150 references in the Old Testament to shame and its derivative words. Shamelessness is considered bad in Scripture. And Jesus scorned the shame of the cross because the cross was shameful. And in the cross, because they're all in the fall, in the cross, Jesus bore the guilt of our sins. That answers law guilt. We are not guilty through Christ. We are righteous through Christ. The shame of the offence against God and one another. So he bore our shame. Jesus, when I'm preaching in an Eastern context, I, I address shame issues much more than I address guilt issues. And Jesus... I mean, the shame of the cross is a massive, massive biblical theme, which we largely ignore in a Western society. Hanging, hanging naked. People have been... Some modern writers are trying to say, what's the nearest equivalent that we can think of to get hold of in relatively modern-day times the awful shame of the cross? And the nearest in Western culture is the lynching tree of black people in America, where literally they were... I mean, it was a horrible, horrible thing. I'm, read, I'm re reading a book by an African-American theologian at the moment, The Cross and the Lynching Tree. How, and how that... You know, someone, even without being found guilty, could have been lynched naked and the whole society came out to look whole white society 
because it's hard to find images. Because cross is a beautiful thing you lay around your neck. Cross was shameful. It was saying this person is not only guilty, but has done the worst thing that you could possibly imagine. They are outcasts. It was reserved for slaves and criminals. But also the cross triumphed over the forces of darkness and Jesus secured the victory over all the evil powers that deals with the anxiety security. See? And people from different cultures will enjoy worship songs that hit those various different things. We love to sing rightly on that cross where Jesus died. The wrath of God was satisfied. You could equally sing in an Eastern context. On that cross where Jesus died, the honour of God was satisfied. Someone I know, uh, I've spoken at a conference jointly with amongst the Chinese, and he he wrote a, a thesis on the doctrine of the atonement saving God's face. Because the honour of God was, he, God had promised every nation would be blessed. God had promised the world would be saved. When Jesus died, he maintained the family honour that that promise could be fulfilled despite the shame and guilt and fear of the world. Do you see? We often talk about um, Western culture being law and guilt. Yes. Um, but it, I wonder whether actually shame and anxiety... Are coming. Could I just, yeah. later on, if I hurry, <laughs> I will get on to how Western culture is now modifying from a law-guilt culture. Because it is. Just like it's modifying from a conceptual... Because those that learn from stories is now increasing proportionately, not decreasing. Because of the modern methods of, social, of you know, learning, you learn from YouTube, you don't learn from formal books. So, so I'll touch on both those at the end, if that's okay. Is that all right, Tim? So... Then there's how that affects worship is important again, as I said. So people from an African context love songs, but I'll just take a simple one, you know. Jesus higher, 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 Satan lower, lower, lower. But it doesn't quite fit Western ways of worshipping. But it, it's powerful in its context. So, think about that when you're planning worship. Are you touching all three of these cultures? Then there's what we call hot climate and cold climate. Hot climate, relationship is the main basis of everything. 
Cold climate, and I've touched on this already, efficiency is the ruling value. In a cold climate, which is mainly Western, the answer is, does it work? In more hot climates, it's, does it maintain our relationship? Russia's an exception because they're, it's cold, but they're hot climate people. <laughs> Priority of values. You see, it's not, you see, every culture values relationship and every culture values getting things done. The difference is the priority in which those two things are put. So, you know, if I'm going to an appointment, I've got an appointment at 11 o'clock, and on the way, at quarter to 11, I meet Tim, and I haven't seen him for 20 years. Now, if I'm in the West, I would say, Tim, it's great to see you again. I'll give you a ring sometime, which doesn't mean anything. Uh, <laughs> I have an appointment at 11 o'clock, and Tim would understand. If I'm in the East, I would say, Tim, I haven't seen you for 20 years. We all spend ages. How's your family? How's your father? How's your brothers? How's their family? We'd go on for ages. I'd get to the appointment nearly an hour late, and I would say, I'm sorry, I met someone on the way who I hadn't seen for 20 years, and they'd understand. <laughs> See? It's not that we both value relationship, don't we? Westerners value relationship. It's just that if getting things done is higher. Easterners and Africans value getting things done, but relationship is higher, which is right. Possible to say. Sometimes Jesus seemed to function one way and sometimes the other. Someone said, well, I must go to the next village. What? What about... Other times, I'm going to Jerusalem, and blind Bartimaeus shouts out, Oh, no, let's stop. Let's go to Zacchaeus' house for tea. Then there's high-context and low-context cultures. Okay. This is best illustrated by a story, first of all. <laughs> Sorry, but you've got the concept. I was once in Pakistan, and I was getting up to preach. I was, I was, no, I was in my hotel. I used to stay in homes, but then the security situation got too difficult, so I, they had to put me in a guarded hotel. And so I came downstairs, and the guy leading our churches there said to me, David, would you present the certificates tonight? Now, I'd never heard of what certificates. I once opened a building in Pakistan. I didn't know when I was leaving the hotel that I was going to open a building. But anyway, uh, to make a speech up pretty quick. But this time was the certificates. I said, what certificates? You haven't told me about the certificates. He said, uh, everybody who's served well in the churches, because of a gathering of churches together this year, we've decided to present us with a certificate to honour them. We just sort of say, 
occasional clap, wouldn't we? But they, <laughs> we want to honour them. We gave them the certificate. The certificate all said, served well in the church this year. Okay. I said, I'd love to do that. Just give me five minutes. So I went back to my hotel room, put on my suit and tie. Because I understood this is a high-context culture. And the presentation of certificates needs to be accompanied. It's not high context. It's not just the act. It's everything surrounds the act. That's high context. So I went and put on my suit and tie, which I take with me to high context cultures for moments just as that. You know, if people travel with me to these places, I say, make sure you bring your suit and tie. Because there's nothing right or wrong with whether you wear a suit and tie or not. It's purely a contextual issue. It's nothing to do with freedom. It's contextual. So I went to do the certificates because I was in a high-context culture. There's not many high-context events left in, left in Britain. There's a few. Graduation ceremonies. Usually funerals. Weddings, although some are beginning to move away from that. And remembrance services. Which is why Jeremy Corbyn got into trouble for wearing some anorak last weekend instead of a dark coat. Because it's a high context event. So we have a few left. High-context cultures operate on the following assumptions. The context of an event is as important as the event itself. The listener is responsible for understanding the communication. That is, you don't dishonour the person teaching you by asking some question because you are implying they haven't explained it properly. So I have to encourage people to ask questions when I'm in a high-context culture. There's no distinction between the idea and the person. So the idea, the thing that God hates the sin but loves the sinner doesn't make any sense. In that context. Experience is equal in value to fact. And life is viewed holistically. It's very difficult for a high-context person to view life in compartments. Low-context people can do it quite easily. There's no work life, home life, social life and spiritual life. There's life. We can analyse it and divide it up. Well, that's how I'm in my work life. Now I'm in my home life. It's different. That's low-context. Now, please, I'm not saying either of this is better than the other. Do you understand? But you have to understand the difference. So the assumption, this assumption underlies a great deal of what might seem baffling to low-context persons. Low-context cultures believe the content of the message is more important than the context. 
Well, what, what they get across doesn't matter how they're dressed. Doesn't matter whether it's in a nice surroundings or not. The speaker is responsible for the communication. I've got to jolly well teach it well. Otherwise, not your fault, it's my fault. They and others are defined by their recent achievements, not by their relationships. Many cultures, it's who you know. And we think, that's terrible. No, it's not terrible. It's just different. Why is who you know and getting preferment worse than the fact you've got a first-class honours degree and get preferment? Why? For the, what, 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 why merit? Why merit and not who you are? Because you have less skilled people in jobs that can be better performed by Yeah, okay. But, but. <laughs> yeah, but that's right. And also, you're, we, we imply value as to jobs you do. Yes. Also, oh no, I won't go there. You see, I, yes, I, I've never been qualified for any job I've ever done. Because the, the people I belonged to when I was at, I went to university to study law, but this strict denomination I belonged to banned universities for all its members. So I left. I made progress in my job, then I moved to banking. And I went in at a higher level than you needed to get the Institute of Bankers' exams to do, so I was all right. Now, I've never had any theological education either, except what I've taught myself. Does that mean I can't teach? Well, be honest. Do you see what I mean? No, no, it doesn't. No, please. Yeah, it, yeah I, I agree with you. I agree you need to be skilled at what you do, but we've got to be careful that we don't effectively give honour to certain things compared with other things. That's my point. Yes, there's no point in having a teacher who can't teach. But we have to be careful in terms of value judgments. Then there's oral and print cultures, or oral and conceptual cultures. They can be better described as those who learn best by story and those who learn best by principles or concepts and writing things down. I look around and I can see different cultures here. Some of you are making notes you will almost entirely be conceptual learners. Some of you are listening to the stories and getting it. You're largely oral learners. 
Because without writing, the literate mind would not and could not think as it does. Not only when engaged in writing, but normally even when it's composing its thoughts in oral form. The fact that you can conceptualise affects the way you think. Because if you don't conceptualise, if you don't understand, if you only learn through stories, you can't even comprehend concepts. But you learn just as well. It's nothing to do with who's better educated. Some educated people are still oral learners. It's nothing to do with how intelligent you are. It's rather how you learn. Many people leave university and don't read another book. Now, I, I learn from books. I'm totally a conceptual learner, could I say. But I've learned to be an oral preacher. Because I understood the concept of oral preaching. <laughs> or preaching for oral learners better. So oral learners learn best through stories. Like to keep things intact. Hence the whole story. Use intuitive store reasoning and store truth in remembered stories and proverbs. Proverbs are very important for oral learners as well. So it's not... Um, so that's how they learn. Conceptual learners, print learners, use lists of, lists of points, principles and steps. Five steps towards. I'm not knocking that. As long as people remember, it doesn't work for most of the people they're, to they're talking to. <laughs> like to break things apart. They're analytical. Use logical, formal reasoning and store truth in written abstract principles. Yeah. It's just a different way of learning. Now there may, there'll be some who cross over a bit. I am a as I say, conceptual learner. I like lists. I like to break things apart. I like to analyse. I learn that way. And I teach in both ways. So before the break, I taught oral learners. After the break, I've taught conceptual learners with a few illustrations. Our problem, as I said earlier, is that 70% of the world learns through stories and that proportion is growing. So, if I'm preaching on a Sunday... Depending on where I am, if I'm in rural Pakistan, it'll be 98% story with a, one or two principles at the end. In other places, it'll be about 50-50. But I, I tell the story, then draw out principles for people that learn that way, because most of our congregations are mixed. So preaching for oral learners, 
we preach from biblical stories frequently, you keep the narrative quality of the passage intact and you sprinkle the sermon with proverbial sayings. Helping listeners relive the story. Making sure that you've understood the culture of the story sufficiently so that it has the same impact on the listeners today as it did on the original hearers. That's a preacher's job. Someone asked me in the break, how do you do that from the epistles? Surely the epistles are conceptual. The epistles presuppose an underlying narrative. There's a lot of theological work being done on that recently. One brilliant book is Paul's Narrative Thought World. Paul essentially was teaching a story. He taught that to the people he was writing to. It was the story of the overall plan of God, which he calls the whole counsel or whole will of God. It's the story based right from Genesis, not to Revelation because he hadn't got there, but how things were promised, how they're fulfilled in Christ, and how they are worked out by those who are in Christ. It's a story. When I'm preaching from, sorry, I preach from Colossians, say, I will teach, firstly, about the church in Colossae. How did the church in Colossae come about? Through Epaphras. So I introduced them all to Epaphras. I tell the story of Colossians. I will then show how all the things that Paul is saying in the different sections relate to his underlying story of the plan of God. I've done that recently, guys teaching from Colossians fairly recently. So I do, I do that. Under those. Often I'll take a Bible story and illustrate. So I went mo- most of my preaching, not all, because you can't get into a new straitjacket. But I'll take a Bible story, teach the story, then show how that story fits in with God's big story to transform the world. It's often how I'll do it. And in that we'll draw out some principles from that. So, um, but I've preached on 2 Timothy 2, verse 2. Things you've heard from me in the presence of many witnesses, these things commit to faithful people who are able to teach others also. People, by the way, it's a word that can be men or women. Right, so the, and I will, so what do I do? I told the whole story of Paul's relationship with Timothy from when he was a teenager in Lystra. How they worked together. Therefore, how Timothy would have learnt and what he would have learnt from Paul. See? Make it a story. Right. Now some principles of contextualisation. Oh dear, how can you do contextualisation in ten minutes? Stick to the point, point, yeah. All right, here we go. Contextualisation involves thoroughly understanding the perspective of your hearers and the questions they are asking. John Stott used it as an image, the image of building a bridge from the scripture to the people you're teaching. He said some preachers build a bridge to nowhere. So they expound the scripture 
but do not land it in the context of the people they're teaching. Other preachers do a preaching, build a bridge from nowhere. So they comment on modern social issues without a biblical foundation. True contextualised preaching takes the biblical truth and applies it in the context and the worldview of the people we're reaching. Very important in multicultural situations. Um, I was once preaching on, you know the story about David and cutting off the end of Saul's cloak. And he dangles it outside, you know, Saul had gone and had stomach trouble and he'd gone to the loo. And you know, it's a great story. And then you, he lifted up this thing and he said, my father. Now, most Westerners miss that. But I developed this, his respect for his father, for an older man. And the Africans in our congregation said to me afterwards, oh, you understand us. Because I drew out something that they would relate to. Contextualisation means... If you're preaching in a multicultural context, you have to think of the culture of all the different people and don't use just illustrations from one culture. Contextualisation is in the Bible itself. It's not just how we apply scripture to different cultures today. We have four examples of sermons from Paul to unbelievers in Acts. To Jews, Acts 13, he gave a summarised version of the Old Testament and shows how it's fulfilled and reinterpreted in the light of Christ. To a pagan peasant community in Acts 14 in Lystra, he did miracles and taught about a God of nature who gives the harvest, and shows how that God is now revealed in Christ. He says, you have a great time at your harvest festivals. You all celebrate. I've come to talk to you about the God who gives you your harvest. In Athens, he doesn't use the Old Testament at all. He uses Greek literature to lead people to Christ. He quotes from one of their poets, a reference which in original context referred to Zeus. In him we live and move and have our being. That was about Zeus. The pagan god in the pantheon of gods worshipped by the Athenians. Though disturbed by idolatry, and he challenges it indirectly by referring to the fact that God is greater and can't be reduced to something made with hands. And the, through the reference to the unknown god refers to a heritage story amongst the Athenians. They had a story about how at one time there was a plague and some prophet or pro po came to them and said they've got to do certain things and then when the plague stopped they said to him, which God freed us from the plague? And he said, oh, it's an unknown God. So they did an altar to the unknown God. So he took their story and showed how it pointed to Christ. Do you see? That's contextualisation. 
in Ephesus. It's like even the use of language in the New Testament. You know, sometimes people working in, not working into, but people misunderstand how we work into Muslim cultures. Say, oh, you mustn't say Allah. I've heard people say that. He's a false god. No, it's the word in Arabic for the supreme god, which Christians and Jews both used even before Muslim Muhammad came. Of course, our Arabic, our Arabic churches worship Allah. Just like our English churches worship God. What's God? It's a pagan name for the supreme being. As is got in German, Borg in Russian. And Paul used Thoos. The Greek word for a god. Of which they had many. But that's the word he used. In the, yeah, no, I, mustn't, I must move on. In Ephesus, there was a massive worldview change through teaching the whole plan of God and sending people from even demons. But what we also learn most interestingly is that Paul had not engaged in specific defamation of Artemis Diana, the patron goddess of Ephesus. This is not even a claim Paul makes for himself, but is stated in his defence by the city clerk to pacify the riot they have neither robbed temples nor blasphemed our goddess. Clearly, Paul's evangelism was uncompromisingly effective, but it was not calculatingly offensive. Don't preach an offensive gospel other than the offence of the cross to all <coughs> cultures. Contextualisation of leadership. No time for that. It's very difficult to discern leadership cross-culturally because different cultures put different signals about leadership. Western culture is the people that can push, can take initiative, can go there. In many other cultures, it's the people who are honoured in the society who may not say much at all. What is missional in style is culturally dependent. So if I'm in Africa or India and a demon manifests in the meeting, we'll demonstrate the power of God by casting it out publicly. In England now, I would largely quieten it down and then take the person to a, another room to be ministered to and set them for, There's many demons in England just like there are in the other countries, but it's just that we handle it differently in terms of a missional style. So... Contextualised church must not look like a strange outside imposition, but a way of dressing, sitting, gathering, musical style, etc., that the culture would not be unfamiliar with. And always ask the question, I'm talking, this is stuff I teach to people going to other cultures, is the model of church we are building easily reproduced in the cultural context in which we're working? Problems sometimes with churches started by expatriate workers. In the UK today, people from Eastern unashamed cultures, people from Africa and other anxiety cultures. Also, for postmoderns, this is your point, Tim. So, will you, 
Will you indulge me with five extra minutes to make up for the tiny little bit you were late for this session to, uh, <coughs> to just make this point? For postmoderns, law and guilt is not as strong as it was and is certainly less of a concept of sin. Some things are seen as definitely wrong, but other issues are seen as valid choices rather than sin. It's getting increasingly difficult, therefore, to preach the classic grace to law guilt because people don't feel guilty. Rather, a new style of shame is coming into postmodern culture. People get shamed on social media. It's not shame in the same way as Eastern shame, where does it undermine the family or something like that. It's shame that undermines your identity. Okay, so you shame people, you diss them, you know? Which means dishonour, shame. <laughs> and increasingly, we are not preaching anymore to a law-guilt culture. So the things that a previous generation would have rejoiced in and sung about, we have to put in different terminology. And we're addressing a shame culture, but we're addressing, but don't do it as if it's an Eastern shame culture. You more have to teach on issues of identity, issues of uh, that. How can I put it? The honour applies to all. That you're not. It's not the the approval of people on social media that counts. It's the honour that Christ gives you. You're totally, you're doing a totally different issue now that you're facing. Because guilt is a powerful feeling of regret and responsibility for one's actions. Shame, in the Western sense, is a painful feeling about oneself as a person. That's what we now need to address. In the West... But it's not the same as the shame on a classic Eastern culture. It's an inner sense of unworthiness rooted in trauma and embarrassing experiences. Need to pay present the grace of God to the shame of personal failure. Also, there are often new forms of legalism relating to what we eat, how we look, how we perform, how our children perform plus the danger of being shamed on social media. For many people today, shame is strong, but without the affirmation of belonging somewhere, leads to a sense of fatherlessness or what is called an orphan spirit. We feel less guilty than ever before and more ashamed than ever before, as Andy Crouch puts it. So, Paul expressed it like this. I love the scripture, though I'm free from all, I've made myself a slave of all, as I might win it. more of them. To the Jews I became a Jew, to win the Jews. Imagine Paul saying that, he was a Jew. But he was so free of cultural identity, because his identity was in Christ, that he became a Jew to reach the Jews. I have to do that when I come back to this country, you know. Oh, I've got to be, become English now. <laughs> <laughs>
you know, and so on. I became all things to all people that I might meet by all means I might save some. Paul is demonstrating that he is free, but so free that he can choose not to be free for the sake of others. He restricts his personal freedom by his missional concerns. Yeah. I did when I was talking about the African culture. Yeah, so in the UK. Oh, I see, in the, I see, in the UK today. Yes, again, that is increasing, I agree, and I should have said it. But again, it's not quite the same as the African thing of, or animistic, not just African, forgive me, Charles. It's not any animistic culture, which it's what could happen to you if you do. It's not quite like that. It's not the external forces. Again, it's much more to do with identity. So thanks, thanks for making that point. That was an important one. You know, it's just important to trans... I'll just end with this personal story. I've had three great compliments over the last few years. First one, I was preaching in Russia and this guy came up to me at the end of the message he gave me a big hug and he said, David, you're not English. What do you mean? He said, you're Russian born in the wrong place. (laughs) (laughs) Then (laughs) I was speaking at our conference for the people from the East and the guy who was introducing me to speak at this conference, I didn't know this, but he was one of our Arab leaders and he said, this is how he introduced me. He said, when I heard this guy, David Devonish, was coming. And they said he was from England. I said, oh dear, that could be a bit of a boring preacher. Which is an interesting comment, isn't it? And but then, I heard, then David came, he said, he preaches like an Arab. And the third compliment I approached in Zambia recently at a big multi-denominational conference. I had to wear a suit and tie the whole time. It was strange, really, because I was contextualising to what the lack of contextualisation of early missionaries was to those people. <laughs> so they'd all told, taught them that to worship God properly, you have to do it in a suit and tie. And now, in order to contextualise, I, who don't do it in a suit and tie, had to go into a suit and tie. But just interesting. Anyway, <laughs> reaping past non-contextualization by contextualizing to something out. Oh, anyway. <laughs> so, but <laughs> one of the guys, actually, it was Toppy, because uh, he was running the conference. Toppy Collioso comes from leads one of, one of our churches in North London. He's Nigerian. He said to me, Dave, he said, David, here you. I said, I've not heard you do this in the UK. You preach like an African. So, of course, I'm in Africa. Those were the three greatest compliments I've had in terms of this contextualisation issue. So, I hope that was helpful. Some questions to work out. Firstly, approach all cultures with humility and read Global Humility by Andy McCulloch. Consider the different cultures in the UK, including the middle class, working class divide, 
And to do that, watch this video that Andrew Wilson released re recently. Because I'd love to have spent a lot of this talk on reaching the working classes who are a different culture from our middle class churches. And we just have not got hold of it, really. But I felt, now, in the end, that would be a whole talk in itself. So I'd rather just teach on culture generally. But that needs to be worked out. All sorts of things are different. But that uh, very short video on that blog from somebody who's working in a uh, working class estate is brilliant and should be compulsory for people who want to do cross-cultural mission to the working class estates of our nation. I hope that was helpful.